Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Charles Godfrey. I'm the director of the Martin School, and welcome to the uh, Martin School. The Martin School was set up nearly 20 years ago now by a very generous uh, donation by Jim Martin. And I'm delighted to say that Jim's widow, Lillian, and her daughter, Jaron, are in the audience with us this afternoon. So on behalf of all of us, Lillian, thank you. Um, it is wonderful today to uh, welcome uh, Adama Diang to the uh, Martin School, who will be talking with Andrew Thompson uh, on the subject of the United Nations and the prevention of mass atrocities in the 21st century, some challenges and opportunities. Uh, Adama has the most distinguished career as an international jurist. Um, he was a registrar of the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and was UN Under Secretary General and Special Advisor to the Sec Sec Secretary General on the Prevention of Genocide, and did many, many other things uh, in, the, uh, in addition to that. And Adama is in the country at the moment um, to launch the Global Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking, which is being chaired by Theresa May, and uh, Adama is the Deputy Chairman. And Adama will be in conversation with uh, Andrew Thompson. Andy is a professor of global and imperial history here in Oxford. Very distinguished career as well. He's a fellow of Nuffield. And I'm delighted to say that he's co-PI on the Oxford Martin School program on changing global orders. And then at the end, we'll have a comment and vote of thanks from Valerie Baroness Amos. Um, Valerie was Secretary of State in the Labour government, Secretary of State for Overseas Development, has also been an Under Secretary uh, General at the UN for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordination. coordination. And at the moment, uh, Valerie is Master of Unit for University College here. So with no further ado, let me hand over to Andy. Okay, so um, Adam, I think you're going to give your talk first and then we're going to... Uh, thank you very much, uh, Andrew. First of all, I would like to say how delighted I am to see my good friend and sister, Valerie Amos, uh, who, despite her busy schedule, decided to come and join us uh, this uh, evening. But the greatest surprise is this gentleman just in front of me, Steve Rapp, who, as you may know, is the one who prosecuted uh, the media trial. And uh, Steve was with me in Arusha as a, a deputy prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. So what a surprise, Steve. Thank you very much for joining us. So uh, colleagues, uh, friends, members of the uh, academic community, it is really, I would say, an honor and uh, a great privilege for me to reflect with you uh, this evening on this important topic on the role of the United Nations in the prevention of genocide uh, in the 21st century. I believe that there is no better place uh, to discuss these issues uh, than uh, at this stellar institution with uh, a rich history where both students and academics continue to engage in cutting-edge research and scholarship which has immensely contributed to the work of the United Nations in the prevention of mass atrocities. 
And I'm proud of uh, what academic institutions like uh, Oxford are doing uh, to contribute to a more peaceful and prosperous world through academic work. Just recently, uh, there was a very important report which was launched from New York and which was co-authored by uh, Andrew, uh, which I share immediately with uh, Secretary General Guterres, but also with the chairperson of the African Union, as well as with the president of Senegal, where I come from. Because it was a very challenging report, but this is not the subject of our discussion today, but I just mention it for you uh, to make sure that you uh, read that report. But now uh, coming to the topic, let me re just remind that the involvement of the United Nations in genocide prevention uh, can be traced way back uh, to efforts undertaken in the aftermath of the Second World War. Mindful of the tragic failure of the League of Nations uh, to stop the Second World War, the UN was therefore created to ensure that atrocious events witnessed during the war do not happen again. You are all very familiar the motto, never again, but unfortunately, never again, turned to become time and again, time and again. And it was in fulfillment of this commitment uh, that uh, one day before the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, on uh, the 9th of December, the General Assembly adopted the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And while this decision may be symbolic of adopting it just ahead of the 10th of December, it reaffirmed the gravity of the crime and the commitment of the international community to ensure its prevention and punishment. The importance of this uh, convention is two-pronged. Firstly, it designates genocide as a crime against international law, whether committed in time of war or in times of peace. And secondly, the convention defines what constitutes genocide. However, unlike any other human rights treaty, the Genocide Convention did not establish a specific monitoring body or expert committee. It is this later aspect which uh, has challenged the international commitment to effectively implement uh, the, this convention since its adoption. And it was not until the early 90s, four decades after its adoption, that the Genocide Convention was invoked to address the aftermath of the bloodshed in Rwanda and in the Balkan. Through Resolution 827-1993 and 955-1994, the UN Security Council invoked the Genocide Convention uh, to set up the ICTY and the ICTR to punish those who bear greatest responsibilities for crimes committed in these territories. This invocation was significant mainly because it reaffirmed the inherent duty of states to punish the crime of genocide. Events in the Balkan 
and the implosion of Rwanda are constant reminders to the international community that catastrophic failure to intervene to protect civilians from atrocities entail high costs often paid for in the currency of lives lost and nations destroyed. That the international community failed to intervene uh, to prevent genocide in both countries, uh, yet managed to set up judicial institutions uh, to punish those responsible. This reaffirms the relevance and importance of this convention decades after its adoption. For those who have been uh, keen to follow the work of ICTR and ICTY closely, uh, you all know that the ICTR, I had the privilege, of course, to serve as a registrar, uh, will agree with me that these two ad hoc tribunals uh, during their existence rendered groundbreaking decisions and contributed to a jurisprudence with huge implication on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. I would say that uh, uh, all the judicial institutions, of course, were set up focusing on uh, punishing the perpetrators of crimes of genocide and other atrocity crimes. And to stress my point, uh, I would mention by way of example the establishment of the extraordinary chambers in the court of Cambodia, the special tribunal for Sierra Leone, special court for Lebanon, and the permanent international criminal court, all reaffirm unwavering commitment of the international community uh, to fight impunity in all its form. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, while it is worthwhile to acknowledge that the existence of an international or regional framework on genocide prevention is crucial, it is equally important to recognize that we can effectively address genocide by adopting preventive measures to preempt it from taking place. Indeed, since the Rwanda and the Balkan tragedy and I should even say, I should be saying, since the crimes committed uh, in Rwanda and in Srebrenica, uh, because this is not a tragedy, it is a crime. And I think that should be really underlined. Since that time, the international community has focused its effort on preventive measures. And in the wake of the 1999 report, of the independent uh, inquiry into the United Nations failure to prevent or halt the Rwanda genocide, the report was generally critical of the role of the UN and the international community at large. The overall conclusion of the report uh, noted that the failure of the United Nations to prevent and subsequently to stop the genocide in Rwanda was a failure by the United Nations as a whole. Clearly, this was uh, an indictment of the international community in its entirety, which required an international response. As a response to this failure, 
in 2004, the Secretary General proposed the creation of the Office of the Special Advisor for the Prevention of Genocide. The key function of the uh, Special Advisor were envisaged to include uh, the collection of existing information on messy and serious violations of human rights, which, if not prevented or halted, might lead to genocide, uh, acting as a catalyst of early warning to the Secretary General and the Security Council on potential situations that could result into genocide, making recommendations on action to prevent or halt genocide, and liaise with the United Nations system on activities uh, for the prevention of genocide. However, the role of the special advisor is not to make uh, the determination whether genocide has occurred or not. Rather, his or her role is to enable the international community to act in a timely manner, and thus any repeat performance of genocide. And following up uh, this initiative of the Secretary General at that time, Kofi Annan, in 2005, the international community brought through the uh, World Summit Outcome document, reaffirmed the role of the international community to protect civilians at risk of genocide. This recognition concretized the belief that while states have an inherent duty to protect their citizens, not all states are capable or, and willing to afford protection to their people. It was therefore essential for the international community to create a framework for a greater involvement in protecting populations at risk. The aforementioned uh, framework represents what is collectively known as the responsibility to protect, the R2P, which is an evolving concept that addresses the uh, failure of states whether unwilling or unable to protect their citizens. That what is novel about R2P is that it challenges the primacy of state sovereignty by shifting focus from rights of states towards the rights of victims of atrocities. And by endorsing the responsibility of states to protect civilians at risk, it is evident that uh, the international community was reaffirming the fact that sovereignty is responsibility. It entails the state obligation towards its people. But despite uh, ongoing recognitions of this responsibility to protect population from atrocities, we must acknowledge that conflict dynamics and dimension are evolving into a rather complex and unpredictable situations. Today, states are no longer an exclusive source of authorities and political power. Today, armed groups are increasingly capable of unleashing brutal violence on scale before unimaginable. 
Today, we are seeing conflict in remote parts of the world being influenced and supplied with weapons from faraway actors. Reality is the UN must evolve and adapt to these new developments. The United Nations must send unmistakable message to all parties involved in conflict that violence of any kind as a tool to resolve differences is unacceptable. Those who instigate, support, or indeed bankroll violence will be punished. It is regrettable that uh, state representatives often interpret meetings with especially the special advisor on the prevention of genocide are suggesting that genocide is present or imminent in their countries, which results in defensive behavior. And that is my uh, good friend uh, Juan Mendez, who was reminding that uh, while early warning uh, is an essential part of the work of the special advisor on the prevention of genocide, it could also be interpreted as prematurely alarmist and raise concern about interference in the internal affairs by, uh, of, of, by, it, by the international community. And he said it very clearly, and I quote, because Mendes was the first half-time special advisor at the rank of ASG. If I wait until all the elements of genocide are in place, according to international law, then by definition, I have not prevented. This also relates to which states the special advisors highlight in their early warning. There have also been differences of opinion between different special advisors on this issue. Here I'm saying advisors because, and I'll come back later, to the, the special advisor on the prevention of genocide and the one on the responsibility to protect. And while some prefer maybe to be more cautious and act in line with the rest of the UN system, following the imperative to speak with one voice, others feel that it is incumbent on their mandate to err on the side of caution. I don't know where, where I was placed, but I can uh, call on uh, Valeria Moss here, who witnessed it at a time even in her office, OSHA, uh, some of her staff were very, uh, let's say, reluctant to engage with my staff because uh, they felt that that may undermine their work. But uh, when I uh, uh, addressed that issue with Valerie at the end of one of our senior management group, immediately upon re her return to her office, she instructed her staff to work closely with the staff of the Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide. And thank you very much again, because you opened at that time, really, a door which was closed. So it, it, this is simply to say that um, we have a long way to go. And what I said about Juan Mendes, my friend Francis Deng, who was the first, I would say, uh, special advisor at the rank of USG and the Secretary General, he also had to complain 
because he was saying that uh, even some colleagues within the UN system, when he comes in with his title, you know, site prevention, would think that he is complicating their lives. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, he has seen in a number of situations the first line of resistance uh, which is coming from our own people, from people of the UN system itself. But as I said, someone like uh, Valerie really removed that, uh, uh, that obstacle as far as uh, Ocha was concerned. And the last, last example I would give was about uh, Erlach, may his soul rest in peace. Uh, Ed Lack was the first special advisor on R2P, uh, and he noted that during his term of office, uh, he frequently experienced uh, that warnings from UN headquarters to parties in a conflict about behavior that was troubling from an atrocity prevention perspective were sometimes seen by special representative of the Secretary General in the field an official at the Department of Political Affairs in New York as too pointed or untimely. And in many such situations, the Department of Political Affairs take the lead and other UN bodies have to fall in line so that the UN can speak with one voice. So unfortunately, prioritizing impartiality and humanitarian access uh, often translate uh, into maintaining good relations with government that may be perpetrating mass atrocities against their population. And this was seen in the UN Secretariat response to the increased violence against civilians in the final stage of the civil war in Sri Lanka in 2008-2009. Despite early warning by the special advisors, a decision was taken to frame the situation as a humanitarian emergency with the emergency relief coordinator and the Office of uh, Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, put in charge. And uh, you will see that, as I argued before, we are moving decisively towards a new age of sovereignty as responsibility. We are slowly but uh, resolutely heading towards an era where those who commit atrocities, those who violate human rights of their people will be held accountable. While accountability may take time, the growing voices of civil societies, independent actors, unmatched technology advancement, among other factors, will continue to contribute to the collection and preser preservation of critical information to hold to account those who commit these atrocities. While it is evident that accountability for the sake of it will not prevent genocide and atrocity crime immediately, it is no less true that the possibility that any perpetrators of such crimes, regardless of who they are, will be held to account significantly influences their actions. 
So with the various tragedies unfolding before our eyes, the obvious question that stands out is, how are we prepared to respond to events such as those in Sudan? Clearly, Sudan represents the litmus test for the international community, but most importantly, to the Security Council and indeed the African Union. Until today, the Security Council has failed to speak with one unequivocal voice against the actions of both parties uh, to the conflicts, but more crucial uh, to take decisive steps uh, to protect civilians who continue to face the brutal nature of this senseless conflict. When I met with General Burhan and General Hemeti, I made it very clear. I said, where is al-Bashir? He is today in the darkness. And is it that future you want for yourself? And this was before the, 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 the war they started between those two factions last April. So I think the council must provide a moral and political leadership to stop ongoing violence in Sudan today. And this is because within the ambit of uh, the current charter, it is only the Security Council which wields ultimate power uh, and indeed political duty and moral responsibility to address challenges with international peace and security dimension. And as such, the message coming from the Security Council, more than anything else, will continue to determine the extent to which we can save and protect lives of vulnerable populations at risk of genocide. I do believe that we have adequate international legal framework to address events such as those unfolding in Sudan and elsewhere. What is urgently required, but which is critically lacking, is the political courage and leadership of the Security Council to overcome divisions in its rank, to fulfill its role, and perform its duty as enshrined in the UN Charter. In my concluding remark, allow me to note that the failure of the Council should not be equated with the failure of the concept of responsibility to protect or the commitment of the United Nations and the Secretary General in particular to address these challenges. Rather, this failure should be seen and addressed within the ongoing debate of the United Nations reforms and especially the Security Council. As events in Libya demonstrated, when the Council is united and willing to overcome these differences, it is more likely to forge a consensus to protect population likely to fall prey to genocide. It is therefore in recognition of these political realities that the United Nations must continue to evolve and adapt to the new realities. Multiplications of armed actors competing for legitimacy 
and power will certainly continue to challenge and influence how and in what context the UN responds to the prevention and punishment of mass atrocities, especially when the UN itself lacks unity among its ranks on how to address such challenges. I also believe that considering the importance of growing role of technology in our today world, the United Nations must continue to make full use of growing technology to prevent our, to benefit our preventive efforts, especially in the collection and preservation of key information for future accountability. I thank you for your kind attention. Adama, thank you very much. Uh, characteristically, for those of us who know you, eloquent and forthright in equal measure. Um, the audience is going to have some opportunity to ask you questions in a few minutes, um, but I have the opportunity to ask you some questions before that. And I thought I would um, ask you some sort of biographical questions to give the room a sense of you as a person, because I think probably the audience is going to ask some questions by way of follow-up um, to your uh, talk. So I want to take you back to that young Senegalese lawyer um, who would eventually become registrar of the Supreme Court of Senegal for six years, I think in the later 1970s and early 1980s. What drew you to a legal career and specifically what drew you to human rights law? Well, I, I would say that I thank my father. My father was a concierge at the harbor. He never went to school. But he was very much attached to justice. And as a concierge, he came to know our first chief justice, Isaac Foster, who later became, as you know, judge at the International Court of Justice. And his dream, my dad, was that I become a judge. That was his dream. So that is what really took me in that field. Uh, may his soul rest in peace. I'm sure that if he was still alive, he would have been so pleased to see that though I did not become a judge, but I fought for what he strongly believed, justice. I fought for what he strongly believed, that we cannot remain passive when perpetrators of serious crimes are uh, working free. So fighting against impunity was really what took me in that area. But then, of course, later, when it uh, related to human rights, I was privy uh, working with uh, the then Chief Justice Kebambai, who is well known, who is the one who uh, conceived the, uh, uh, who developed the concept of right to development, you know, because at the end of the day, coming from the global south, uh, Keba and uh, what I call his disciple, we came to the conclusion that uh, the politics, civil, political rights are important, the economic, social rights are 
also important is right are interdependent, inseparable, indivisible. But on top of that, we felt that there was solidarity rise which needed to be reflected. And that is how the African Charter on Human and People's Rights was the first instrument uh, to uh, recognize the right to development as a human rights and to recognize also the right to peace. So uh, this is more or less what brought me in that area. And so many people in the room will know of your work um, through what you did at the United Nations. But of course, when you moved out of Senegal, it wasn't straight to the UN. It was to an organization that you mentioned in your talk. And I think I very rarely heard you talk and not mention this organization. So I know it's important to you is you joined the International Commission of Jurists and eventually came to serve as its Secretary General for a decade in the 1990s. And I think you were awarded um, a prestigious and the ICJ Human Rights Prize at that time. And I wonder if you could just tell us why that prize was important, but I think more broadly, how formative that decade was leading the ICJ for what you went on to do. How did it shape you as a, as a diplomat and prepare you for then what came next at the UN? Well, being here in the UK, I cannot but really pay tribute to my predecessor at the ICJ, the late Neil McDermott. Uh, McDermott was a former minister in the UK government at that time. He, when he succeeded uh, Sean McBride as Secretary General of International Commission of Juries. It was a, a very difficult time. And uh, I was definitely trained by Neil McDermott. That's why I said I cannot but really pay tribute to this great man. But the 90s, the period during which those 10 years, uh, the ICJ was, as you know, instrumental to develop many instruments. And I uh, was reminding recently to a young people young people in uh, Dakar that when we had the Vienna Congress in Human Rights, I was trumpeting along the walls of the Vienna Congress. That time has come really to establish a permanent international criminal court to bring to an end impunity. Before I just organized it a colloquium on no to impunity, yes to justice. It was very difficult to convince at the time the delegates in Vienna. Finally, they accepted a small reference uh, to the call I was making, and that was late in the night. But uh, also, most importantly, during that period was a convention to fight corruption in Africa. Why in Africa? Because I failed uh, to get something at the UN Human Rights Commission. Although at the subcommission, the members accepted the proposal I made, that was to adopt a resolution on the fraudulent enrichment of top state officials detrimental to the public interest, meaning simply corruption. Uh, that was the time we witnessed people like uh, uh, the late Mobutu, you know, spoiling the resources. But let's remember, where you have corrupt 
corrupted people, you have corruptors also. The corruptors from the north, the corrupted from the south. So if you have to, you have to address that issue. The subcommission forwarded the resolution to the Human Rights Commission, but there it was defeated by United States and Japan. They felt that this is not a human rights issue and should be dealt with by the UN crime branch in Vienna. So out of frustration, I spoke uh, with uh, first the uh, legal counsel of uh, the World Bank, at that time, Ibrahim Ashiata, was uh, the legal counsel and vice president, said, well, Adam, I sympathize with you, but the bank don't deal with these issues. And that is the late uh, Babakan Yai, who was president of the African Development Bank, who said, no, I have no problem. Because particularly I was saying, I don't need a penny. I just need to have the bank's uh, name uh, because the idea was to show that uh, the corruption was the major obstacle to the enjoyment of economic and social rights. Because the billions which are being stolen, you know, could have been used to make sure that people have access to education, access to health, access to water, etc., etc. So finally, we had that uh, meeting in Abidjan, and that is where comes the resolution in 1998 at the Burkina Faso summit of the OAU, following which Dr. Salim Ahmed Salim, who was then the Secretary General, asked me to prepare a study on corruption in Africa, legal, economic implication, and to draft, to submit a first draft convention to fight corruption. So uh, this, to me, was one of the really greatest achievements. Yet, uh, we are still facing corruption, but at least the issue is no longer taboo. So probably just one more question from me, and we'll open up to the audience. But fast forward to 2001. Uh, I think you were about, or had just been appointed, uh, about to be appointed as the Senegalese ambassador to Paris. And then Kofi Annan approaches you um, to ask you um, to be the registrar of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. You're immediately faced with a whole raft of challenges. You've got nine international judges that you got to weld together as a team. You've got to make sure the Rwandan people have your confidence and that justice is really going to be delivered. You had the acquitted people sometimes forget those and finding a home for those, and I suppose a whole raft of other things beside. What was it that, you know, how did you rise to that challenge, and what did that challenge involve of putting the tribunal on a stable footing in those first couple of years in which people could have confidence in and which had legitimacy? Well, it, it was on the eve of Christmas in 2000 when Hans Korel, the then legal counsel of the United Nations called me and said, well, uh, Adama, Secretary General Anand wants you to be the uh, registrar of the ICTR at a level of Assistant Secretary General. And as you said, I said, well, I'm sorry, Hans. I'm about to pack and to take my position as ambassador. And Hans said to me, look, Adama, you can become ambassador at any time. 
that Secretary General Anand has been searching for someone, and everywhere he goes, everyone he asks, your name was coming. So I said, okay, give me time. So uh, he said, no, 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 it's urgent. The Secretary General is right now in Beijing waiting for an answer. I said, no, I can't. So we agreed that uh, 48 hours later, I will come back with him. And then when I call uh, Justice Kebambai, I said, well, Kebambai, what should I do? He said, well, you have devoted your life to fight impunity. You have devoted your life for human rights. As the young people say in Paris, yapa photo. Uh, this is an expression, so there is no you have to accept. That's how I came. I came at a time, I don't know, I don't know if Steve, you were there at the time, the tribunal was facing many challenges, and particularly, as you say, difficult relationship between uh, the uh, president and the registrar. But maybe, thank God, as I had the experience working with uh, judges, I think that helped me a lot. Uh, my predecessor did a tremendous work, Justice Okali, but maybe he did not have that same advantage I had. And from day one, I established a very smooth relationship with the president. I made sure that once a week, we sit in her room. At the time, that was my sister, Navi Pile, who later became High Commissioner for Human Rights. We'll sit. Even if there is no problem, we'll have our cup of tea and it. So that helped it a lot. And there was also many challenges because that was, there was a time uh, the uh, victims in uh, Rwanda decided to boycott the tribunal. But also the defense launched also movement. The, 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 that was a time really where both sides uh, were suspicious about this tribunal. First of all, you know, the government of Rwanda was not very pleased with the fact that the tribunal was located in Arusha. They wanted the tribunal to be in Kigali. Another problem they had also at the time was that our book did not include death penalty, and they wanted, of course, death penalty. But the tribunal managed. Starting from the first conviction of Jean Kambanda, who was the then prime minister of the genocide, side uh, uh, regime, uh, followed by many other important decisions, and I will here refer to the Akayesu uh, decision judgment, uh, which in fact uh, uh, equated rape committed under certain circumstances as genocide. And also, uh, I would say another important one was the media trial, which uh, my friend Steve Rapp prosecuted. And uh, I always mention, even these days, that we have to go back to the media judgment to learn. Because uh, this was the first time that journalists was put in the dock. Because in Nuremberg, we had, of course, but this was not the same time. And when we see the rise of hate speech today around the world, it started from the United States, particularly during the Trump days with Steve Bannon and Coles, uh, and in fact I was saying that uh, while uh, uh, the UN principals were enjoying the summer before the, uh, the conference on the migrant, 
Those people were fueling through the media all type of discourse. And that led even some European government to back, you know, on this issue of the migrant. I remember in Belgium, I think that led even to the resignation. And in Switzerland, though they were the rapporteur. So this is to say the danger of hate speech. And uh, we need to do something. And that's when Secretary General Guterres asked me uh, to uh, lead a process which ended with the adoption of a strategy and a plan of action to address hate speech. We have to do more, more. We have seen during the COVID-19 pandemic the rise of hate speech when people are being used as scapegoat. So I think that is something we have to Thank you very much. I think this is our cue to let the audience have a go. <laughs> so, okay, there's a hand straight up at the back. So can we go for that one? Oh, where I've come from. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for sharing uh, insights from your amazing work. I'm Tyrell, a doctor student uh, researching the protection of civilians at University College. Uh, and with events unfolding in um, Gaza and Tel Aviv, I thought it was suitable to ask you uh, what is currently happening inside your office at the moment? Uh, are there, and if, um, mass atrocities are uh, detected. What tools does your office have available to deal with the situation that we see unfolding in Gaza if uh, the political promises are being delivered on? Thank you so much. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, what is happening under our eyes now in Gaza, in Israel, is very, very sad. I mean, uh, we are counting hours after hours innocent people who are being killed. And the uh, life of innocent people can be taken like that. The life of an innocent Palestinian, the life of an innocent Israeli are equal. And we need to make every effort to bring to an end this situation. But if you look at this situation, this is a time for me to remind how important it is to build a strong peace. And uh, I remember discussing with uh, President Jimmy Carter that was in Minnesota during the Nobel Peace Prize Forum and discussing with him something I just mentioned with Amos, my, one of my visits in Gaza those days, when I saw Palestinian workers uh, going back to Gaza. And uh, it was very sad. And that reminded me those days what I call the apartheid system in South Africa, when the black workers were leaving Johannesburg, going back to Soweto. The then Israeli ambassador in Geneva was not happy and said, well, how can you? I said, listen to me. What Harris published, you know, they didn't put it in the context. And what I have said, I repeat it again, that is what came to my mind immediately. 
But now, what is happening today? Is it, are we witnessing crimes against humanity? Are we witnessing war crimes? Are we, can we speak about uh, even some talking about genocide? I think what is important is first and foremost to give every chance to ensure that the civilian population are not being used as shields. You know, we have to ensure also that the seas which has been apparently declared, the seas of Gaza, be lifted because there are innocent people. I was just uh, reading that uh, the Scottish, uh, one of the Scottish minister, first minister, his family-in-law traveled there to visit one of them. They, were, they are caught now in this trouble. Who knows? I hope they will not die. I could have been there also because I'm, uh, I'm planning to travel to, I was planning to travel early next year to, to, to Israel in my capacity as honorary chair of the uh, International Association for the Defense of uh, Religious Freedom. Uh, but with this situation happening, uh, I may certainly uh, uh, think twice before, because I, th I think time has come to put more pressure. That is why I do believe that the position taken by so far by some government, including uh, President Biden, including the European, saying, st stating publicly that we are backing uh, Israel, I mean, this is very complicated. But to me, I leave aside the political aspect. But let's focus. What can we do to ensure that the innocent people, Israeli innocent people, Palestinian innocent people, are not trapped and killed in this war? Let's make sure that those in Gaza have access to humanitarian uh, assistance. It's, it's very difficult. But uh, the bottom, of course, is we, it is time to come to a solution, to bring to an end this uh, long, ongoing crisis and violations in uh, Palestine. We need to see a solution. And there was a solution proposed, the two-state solution. And that is possible. Why not to do it? So there are many other certainly interests which are preempting a solution. This time on Earth, what we have seen so far, apparently there are even more victims on the sides of the uh, Israeli. I remember the first day when I was seeing, it was very sad to be counting 200 victims on this side, 212 on the other side, something which never happened. So let's avoid, let's avoid dramatizing further this situation because already there are people referring to Iran backing. So let's not internationalize these things. Let's make sure that these two parties, I mean, Palestine, Israel, get again around the table. Peace, there is nothing more precious than peace. So we have a question right at the front here, but just before that's um, asked, just to be clear for everyone in the room that um, 
Adamus stepped down as the Special Advisor and Under Secretary General for the Prevention of Genocide in 2020. So he's not speaking in that capacity in the room today. <laughs> Next question, please. Adama. Thank you Good very to much. see you again. <laughs> currently being irresponsible with regards to the climate breakdown and ecosystems collapse and that in fact every war is likely to be a fight over ecological resources and until we and perhaps we need to redefine peace negotiations and make sure that mother nature has a seat at the table otherwise the normal meaning of peace is to go back to business as usual, but business as usual is ecocidal at the moment. Well, I thank you very much for raising this issue. And as you may know, if there is uh, one continent which is uh, polluting the less, that is Africa. Who are the, those who are polluting the most? United States of America, China, etc. And, well, in European, if you want, UK, if we had to put a ranking. And who are suffering the most? That's the African. They have been suffering from the time of the slavery, from the time of the trade. Then they went, had their independence. But yet, there are many of them, the independence is just like this. I never condone coup d'etat, but there has been recently many coups. Frustration of the people. What we need when it comes to the climate, we have seen what happened in COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. They had fun even to extend by one day because they could not reach an agreement because of money. And those who are polluting, refusing to put money. So they decided finally, they reached an agreement. Let's see what's going to happen at COP28. As a matter of fact, I'm uh, facilitating a meeting of uh, religious leaders on 6th and 7th November in Abu Dhabi, uh, being organized by uh, the Vatican, Muslim Council of Elders, COP28 presidency, and UNEP. Because the voice of the religious leaders, the good faith organization, is very important. This is a matter for everyone. And we, as I said, African, we are the victims. And what's happening these days, many conflicts, I referred earlier about what is happening in Sudan. Africa is the richest continent. Without, for instance, the cobalt we are finding in DRC, we will not be able to use today this mobile phone. But yet, but yet, we have seen leaders, Western leaders, being engaged in corruption with African leaders. I mentioned it earlier, Libya. But one frustration I had about Libya is when the Security Council authorized the NATO forces to bomb Libya so as to say to prevent, to protect the civilian population. What happened after? 
nothing. And that's why, I, at that time, I advised the Secretary of Ban Ki-moon, make sure that in the next year report, we mention that the Security Council, whenever they decide to authorize the use of force in a particular country invoking R2P, they have also to think about what next after the intervention. Because not having provided any room, we saw weapon moving all the way in the Sahel region. And today the Sahel region is dominated by all these uh, Islamist groups. You have even Daesh now present in that region. And who is benefiting of the wealth of Africa today? Mostly those in the Western world as the one who are mostly benefiting rather than the African themselves. Thank you. Now we had a question about halfway back just there. Okay. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, firstly, you know, your this is a question for you about the UN, not you as an individual. Your um, yeah, your work in, in Rwanda was undeniable. Um, firstly, it's it's more about the creation of UNRWA and the way that the majority of the Palestinian refugees are classified under UNRWA as opposed to the UNHCR. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, that's potentially another barrier in the denial of the right of return. Um, and secondly, going back to 1948 and the end of the British mandate um, and actually the UN complicity with the UN partition plan and the events that have perpetuated since then, you know, the massacres, the, the building of the national forests of Israel over, you know, multiple villages. Um, you could constitute it's been a very slow genocide. It's certainly a system of apartheid. How do you think that the UN silence um, makes them complicit in one of the very things that they're sort of, you know, working to stand up for? Well, I, I, I would say that uh, I always am very, uh, I, I'm always very reluctant to use the G word. It is so serious, the G word, that one cannot use it lightly. And uh, I rather focus, most of the time I do, on crimes against humanity. It's already something very serious. And this, of course, does not exclude to continue investigating so as to find whether there is, in a specific situation, the intent to exterminate in part or in total a group because of its identity. You know, genocide is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It requires time, planning, etc. So we may have the physical element, but then to have uh, the uh, evidence of the uh, intent element is another story. And uh, Steve Rapp, who is a prosecutor, knows how hard it is. You know, and that's why. And now the Guardian, of course, UNRWA. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very sad because. Uh, this UNRWA should not have been today into existence. In other words, the situation should have been resolved long time ago. We have had the Oslo Accord, we have had, but any time we lose. We have seen even a prime minister being killed because championing peace. I'm not referring to Isaac Rabin, you know, and uh, 
let's give chance to peace. I, sometimes I just wonder if that's not those people, those mercants of death, those people selling their weapon who are the problems, those who are making profit from the blood of innocent people. And this has to come to, a, to, to an end. And I think it is time for Israeli and Palestinian to get together. There was a time when I traveled to Gaza, when I traveled to Israel, the civil society of both countries were working. But in recent years, what have we seen? We have seen a degradation even in that type of relation. What's wrong? What's wrong? So we end with an issue of leadership. I, I think there is a problem of leadership in this world today. So to be even handed, I'm going to look back to this side. Uh, thank, thank. Sir, sir. So, so I think sir. we should let someone else. Excuse me, sir. Uh, Clara, we've got um, uh, someone in the middle just here, and just there. Yeah, thanks very much. Hello, and thank you so much for this great presentation. I'm a visiting scholar from China. Uh, I, I really appreciate you mentioned about R2P principle. I think it's so important for preventing the genocide. But my question is because that you know there are some states, uh, especially not labor that democratic states, they are very cautious about this principle because they worry about whether it could be abused for other uh, issues uh, beyond the, this uh, extreme crime or genocide. So, so my question is what your attitude and opinion how to uh, how to make get the a uh, uh, broader consensus around the world, especially for the big countries in the uh, in the UN's Council uh, Security Council. Thank you. Uh, I had a problem with noise, but I hope I understand what you were talking about. Uh, you were referring to R2P, is it? Because uh, R2P is uh, uh, oriented from the uh, prevention of genocide, but nowadays uh, many some countries they uh, could be very cautious about it because especially uh, they are worried about whether it could be used on. Okay. No, no, no. D d definitely, d d of course, we have been uh, facing this debate, uh, particularly since after the uh, uh, the Libyan scenario. And that led even uh, first starting the first one who expressed it, uh, remorse for having uh, voted was President Zuma of South Africa. But later on, even President Obama expressed it the same, and then Tony Blair expressed it the same. The one I haven't yet heard expressing such remorse is former President Sarkozy. And he's the one, as you may know, who was very much in close with Gaddafi, and there is even a case, a criminal case pending of a corruption as Gaddafi, it is alleged that Gaddafi provided him with funds for his uh, electoral campaign. So it is true that uh, R2P was, let's say, perceived by some uh, as a tool for, let's say, the Western world to uh, uh, interfere in the affairs of the others. But as I said, when it comes to R2P, if it is implemented properly, that means simply there is a wide avenue for intervention to protect civilians. But this has 
to go through a process. The council, you have the five permanent members, you know, and uh, of course, all of them in 2005 accepted the R2D, para 139, para 140 of the World Summit Outcome document. Because the three pillars of the R2P, the first pillar is the state responsibility. The primary responsibility lies with the state. Now, when the state doesn't have the mean, because not every state has the mean, that state can ask the international community to help and then to provide the necessary tools to protect the population uh, to facing the risk of uh, atrocity crimes. And the third pillar is when you have no other avenue than intervening military to protect the population. So that, that means this is the ultimate recourse. The use of force will be the ultimate recourse. We have seen situation where uh, I can say if we were able uh, to uh, prevent atrocity crimes to occur, thanks to early involvement of the UN. I was giving uh, recently the example of Kenya, you know, and I was saying, but let's be uh, humble. If Kenya in 2013 escaped a situation where ethnic group would kill each other, that is because the Kenyan people themselves took their destiny in their hand. The civil society was mobilized. We only provided them with resources to do work. And then the other dimension was also the accountability dimension. We all remember the famous Ocampo 6, you know, when following 2007, 2008 events, the case, uh, thanks to Kofi Annan, was referred to the ICC. So uh, the only thing, to my view, is for those people in the Western world to provide reassurance to the people of the Global South, to show that it is not about interfering as an imperialist force to interfere in their affair, but it's about saving lives. It's about saving lives. But unfortunately, what we are seeing today doesn't help the R2P to grow in a very healthy way. Adam, at this stage, I'm aware, painfully aware of two things, just how many people there are in the room that would like to ask a question, um, alongside just how strict Professor Godfrey is with his Swiss standards of timekeeping. So um, <laughs> unless you want to break your own rule and ask an online question, I've got a vigorous uh, uh, no, um, then could we invite uh, Valerie Amos to come and give the vote of thanks? Uh, Adama, my friend, my uh, colleague, it's a particular pleasure to have been asked to give um, the vote of thanks. And I wanted to start with two thank yous uh, to you, really. Um, the first, for your courage in speaking up and speaking out uh, about the continued atrocities that we're seeing around the world. 
Um, and secondly, that you continue to shine a spotlight um, on those um, atrocities and you're not afraid to do that. If I may, I wanted to just pick up a couple of things that you said in your presentation which, and in the Q&A, which were incredibly, incredibly um, important. You alluded to the importance of recognizing, as it were, the intersectionality in terms of work on human rights, um, the humanitarian work, uh, but also on development issues. And that the way that very often the UN addresses these issues is not in a holistic um, way. That much of what we see uh, by way of uh, atrocity, um, we could identify um, in advance if we think about the conditions that lead to these uh, situations, the breakdown of the rule of law, for example, um, the breakdown in terms of the protection of uh, civilians. And we see this being played out time and time again without uh, intervention. Crucially, um, you talked about the importance of words and definition. Uh, words and definition really do uh, matter. But I do think it's important that we are careful that uh, in the noise around these definitions of genocide, crimes against humanity, and so on, that these are not used as a mechanism for preventing Action. And we have sometimes uh, seen that. When governments have got worked up about is this a genocide or not, is this a crime against humanity, there's an important legal track, I think we all recognize that, but there is important work on the ground which we need to really be able to key into and which informs uh, that uh, legal track. Uh, and it links very firmly to the points you made around accountability, monitoring and uh, reporting, particularly if we are going to challenge uh, this concept of uh, sovereignty, which very often states use as a mechanism to ensure that there is no discussion uh, or to try to prevent discussion about what's happening in their countries. And we saw this when you and I worked together um, when Syria was very high on the agenda. And indeed, when what happened with Libya in relation to R2P was actually used against us when we tried to use R2P in relation to um, Syria. So coming to uh, your conclusion, you very clearly identified the way in which political differences between the permanent members of the Security Council doesn't just stifle uh, action, it actually works against it sometimes because we see them engaged in uh, proxy wars. So what does that mean for all of us in this room and for you? It means that we have to continue our efforts despite the Security Council. We need to find uh, allies and stakeholders that we can work with. We are not necessarily seeing the leadership from the Security Council that we would like to see. So that leadership needs to come from all of us and crucially it comes from you. So thank you very, very much indeed for coming tonight uh, and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thank you.